Lord God, you are God alone. You transcend time and space and culture, and we do not. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are your ways our ways. And we need your help, Lord, as we open your word that reveals to us your thoughts. Help us, O Lord, to sit at your feet and learn your word today in quietness and in submission. May your Holy Spirit open the eyes of our minds that we may see and approve things that are excellent. May may you persuade our hearts to receive the truth in the love of it. And may you direct our steps to walk in the paths of mercy and truth. And for this we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We are going to begin in 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. We're closing up chapter 1. And I want us to keep in mind that all of chapter 1 was Paul um, setting the foundation for his charge and his encouragement to Timothy to remain in Ephesus as the overseer, the pastor of the church there. In the New Testament, the word overseer is used interchangeably with the word elder or bishop. They refer to one office. In our own cultural context today, we most often use the word pastor to describe this very same position. So in chapter 1, Paul lays his foundation for this charge. And then in chapter 2, all the way through the rest of the letter, Paul is giving instructions for Timothy on how he is to go about carrying out this charge. We have, what we have in this letter is a summary of order in church life. Paul addresses things like instructions for worship, how believers should behave when they gather together for worship. What is their priorities? What is their heart attitude? What sort of leaders do we look for? What should Timothy's personal priorities be? What ministry challenges require particular attention? So today, what we're going to look at is we're going to conclude the introduction of the charge, and we're going to begin looking at his instructions for worship. So let's look together at um, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. And the word of the Lord says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And I just want to pause here for a moment to remind us that this charge, the words, this charge I entrust to you, takes us back to the beginning of um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And Paul's charge to Timothy to guard and defend the church from what is false, from the false teachers, to teach what is true, which, as Paul tells us, is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which Paul had been entrusted. Paul is entrusting to Timothy what had been entrusted to him, the gospel and the care of God's people. The word entrusted carries with it a sense that the thing that has been entrusted is of great value. If you have been entrusted with a treasure, you are going to take great care of this treasure. You're going to watch over it carefully. You will make sure that you do not lose this treasure that you have been entrusted with. You're going to um, protect it, guard it, 
even in some ways want to display it so others can see it. And this is what Paul is talking about. Paul has been entrusted with the gospel of the glorious God, and he's entrusting Timothy with that same treasure. But not just the gospel, but it's also God's people that are being entrusted to the overseers, to the care of their overseers, so that they would be protected from being deceived from false teachers and led astray by them, and that they would be educated in the truth of God's word. How beautiful is God's care for God's people? I get so overwhelmed by this truth that he cares so deeply for our souls and does not lead us, leave us to fend for ourselves. He has given us the gospel, he has given us his word, and he has given us the church gathered together in community, overseen by men who are called by God to feed us through his word and guard us from the false teaching. I'm so thankful, and I hope you are too, for the goodness of God and the order that he establishes for our good. So let's continue on. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This charge that Timothy had been entrusted with is a challenging charge. We have established that over the last few weeks. It is so challenging that it is called warfare. How is Timothy to wage warfare and persevere in his faith? Well, Paul tells him, remember the prophecies. Remember the prophecies that were previously made about you. Now, we've not been given record of those prophecies. We don't have any idea what those words were. We do understand and believe that those prophecies were made at the time when Timothy was ordained into the ministry, that he was called and the elders laid hands on him and called him to ministry. And they spoke words, prophetic words over him about his calling. And it was through those words that Timothy had heard that would help him to wage the good warfare, to persevere in his faith, to hold fast to his faith, meaning his personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the doctrines, the truths that we are, he had been held fast to, that he confessed. In remembering these words, he would recall to his mind his calling and the one who had called him. Remember what Paul said in verse 12. We looked at this last week. He said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And perhaps those words are similar to the words that have been spoken over Timothy. That it was Christ Jesus himself, his Lord, who had judged him faithful. Who had appointed Timothy to his service. 
And so Timothy, in recalling these words, would recall that it was Christ Jesus who called him, that Christ Jesus who would give him the strength, that Christ Jesus that would help him to carry out what he had been called to do, that would help him to persevere in not only his faith, but in his calling and in his purpose. Going back and continually remembering his call to ministry and Christ Jesus will be the very thing that gives him strength to actually wage the good warfare. So he's being called to remember the prophecies. But not only that, Paul also tells him to remember those who have fallen away, who have not hold, held fast. He said, Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of, his, of their faith. He recalls, he reminds Timothy of those that have rejected the faith, who have walked away. Now, this word that is translated, rejected, here in this passage is a very strong word. It's not used very often in the New Testament, but it is, interestingly enough, used two times in Acts chapter 7, the very same word. And Acts chapter 7 recounts Stephen's sermon right before he was about to be stoned. And he preached a very lengthy sermon about the entire um, history and story of God's redemption plan. But in that sermon, he speaks of two occasions when Moses, people in, um, did, rejected Moses. So the first case is in Romans or Acts 7, 27. And he's referring to when Moses was in Egypt. It was early on in Moses' life, and he was in Egypt. And if you recall the story in Exodus, Moses saw two Israel Hebrew men fighting each other, and he tried to interfere with them, and he tried to bring reconciliation to them. But the man who was wronging his neighbor, um, Stephen says, thrust him aside. That's the word, rejected. Thrust him aside, saying, who made you, Moses, a ruler and a judge over us? So there's force behind this word. He uses it a few verses later in verse 39, again, in speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness. Um, Stephen said this, our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, but thrust him aside and in their hearts return to Egypt. So Paul is speaking here of that same idea. That same idea that some have shipwrecked their faith by thrusting aside the truth. They've thrust it aside. Now, this is important for us to know because what Paul is referring to in this passage is not someone who's stumbling, stumbling in their faith, struggling with doubts in that moment. We all struggle with doubts. We all stumble in our faith. And when we do so, we pray, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. He is not referring, though, to this. He is referring to a thrusting away of what somebody has taught, been taught the truth of God's word, the gospel message, the faith that um, they had, had been presented to them, and they thrust it aside and completely reject it, turning to something that is false. This is what he's referring to. And he, he talks about if we don't persevere, if you don't persevere in the faith, this is what happens. This is what can happen. Many have done this, and then he specifically speaks of two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, we don't know for sure who these men are, 
But there is a Hymenaeus that's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 2, 17 through 18, who swerved from the church, truth. And Alexander in 2 Timothy 2, verse 14, we are told, who did great harm to Paul by strongly opposing his message. It could be that these are the very same men in 2 Timothy as are referred to in 1 Timothy, but we are not quite sure but these men have done great harm. They have made shipwreck of their faith. They have rejected the truth and, and the good conscience that they had at one time, at least on the surface, participated in. And so Paul is warning Timothy, and he's saying, using them as a negative example to hold fast to your faith, but he's also using them as a teaching and an instruction for Paul for Timothy as to what he should do when he encounters people who thrust aside the truth and reject the, the truth of the word of God. What did Paul say that, that he did to, for them? He says that I have handed over to Satan, Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. These words are words of instruction. These words are really severe words. They kind of stop us in our tracks. To think about being turned over to Satan is a sobering phrase. It's only mentioned twice that I know of in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says it in regards to a man that was a part of the Corinthian congregation who had fallen into sexual sin, sexual immorality, and the church was putting up with it. They were tolerating it. They did not rebuke him. They did not confront him in his sin and were allowing it to continue on. And he says to them to turn him over to Satan. So for extreme ethical sexual, grave sexual or ethical sin, and then here for grave doctrinal sin. These words are a warning, but they are also instructive to Timothy in how he ought to respond to those who reject the faith. Remember that Paul knows what it means to be a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer. So his words here are not punitive words. They are not words that are intended to be destructive what he is saying is he desires for them to learn to not blaspheme anymore. These are actually redemptive words. This is a redemptive action. Satan is viewed as God's agent in judicial administration. And note that Satan is under the authority of God. Satan is not the powerful one. God is. And he is used by God for God's purposes. And in this case, turning over to Satan is God using Satan to discipline in order that these men and perhaps others who may be watching this teetering on the edge of their own faith to be brought back to repentance and to no longer blaspheme. So with this charge to Timothy, Paul immediately begins to turn his attention to some very specific instructions about the order of worship. This is um, not about private worship. This is referencing about the corporate gathered assembly of worshipers. Let's take a look at what Paul has to say. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with the words, first of all, then. 
This lets us know that what is about to follow is priority. He is prioritizing what is about to follow. And that first priority that we note in the text is prayer. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. This is basically his way of saying all kinds of prayers. Prayer is to be a priority, and all kinds of prayers are to be a priority. Supplications, asking, interceding for one another, giving thanks, all kinds of prayers are a priority for the gathered assembly of worshipers. And all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. We could never pray individually for every single person on the planet, right? We could not. But he's saying that prayers are to be made for all people. He is speaking of all kinds of people, not just my people, not just the people that are like me, the, my friends, but all kinds of people, people like kings and those who are in positions of authority. This challenges me personally. I got to be honest. Because I pray all kinds of prayers for my people, for you guys. But I would much rather complain about those who are in authority over me than pray for them. I would complain all the live long day about my leaders, my government leaders. And it would never occur to me to pray for them except the word of God tells me to. All kinds of people we need to be praying for, and specifically kings and those who are in high positions, that, for this purpose, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It is God who can sovereignly turn the hearts of kings. It is God who can sovereignly turn the hearts of rulers. We cannot. And so when we appeal to God to turn the hearts of our kings and our rulers, we are appealing to the only authority who can. We are appealing to the only authority who can. And this is good, verse 3 tells us. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. But this is good that we may lead a peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way, but not for our own comfort. It's not so that we can lead a life of the American dream and experience all the comfort that the world has to offer. That's not what this passage is teaching us. We are praying that God would turn the hearts of kings so that we can live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, so that in verse 3 we, and 4, we see that the gospel can go out into the world, into our neighborhood, into the city, into the communities that are around us. This is what we're praying for. This is the second priority of the gathered assembly. We're to pray, but the gospel is a priority for us. The good news of the salvation that comes through the knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ is the priority of the church. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Notice 
He refers to God as our Savior because that is what this is about. Who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God instructs his people to pray that the gospel is spread. Prayer often reveals to us what our priorities are. What we pray for the most reveals what our priorities are. And God is calling his people to pray that all people will come to the knowledge of the truth. This is to be the priority of the church, to spread the gospel, the knowledge of the truth to all people. This is our priority because this is God's priority. God desires this. And as God's people, his desires become our desires. He desires for all people. And again, in this context, all does not signal every individual person without distinction, but rather signals all kinds of people. Not just Jewish people. Not just men. Not just the wealthy. God doesn't desire just the favored ones. But all people throughout the world, for so, for so very long, the people of Israel had thought that salvation was only for them. It was only for them. The great mystery of the gospel that was hinted at through the entire Old Testament, Old Testament was that salvation would come through the Jews to the nations. This has been God's desire from the very beginning of time, that his people would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God worshipers, to fill the earth with people who are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ the Savior. This is what the Great Commission is all about. Go out and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, is the be fruitful and multiply of the New Testament and fill this earth with God worshipers. And everyone can do that. Don't miss the connection that salvation comes through the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the truth comes through the preaching and teaching of scriptures that hold for us the knowledge of the truth. And this is also a priority for the church and the gathered assembly on a Sunday morning. Look with me at verse 5. For there is one God, and this is the truth that we are called to proclaim. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. He just wants us to know this. There's so much false out there. And he's like, I am not one of the false. I am telling you the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
Paul summarizes here the truth that the scriptures teach and the truth that he has committed his life to teaching and preaching, both to the Jews, but specifically to the Gentiles. The truth, first of all, that there is one God. There is one God, and this one God is revealed to us in scripture. Now, this truth that there is one God would have penetrated into the darkness of the culture at Ephesus and throughout all of the known world at that time. Multiplicity of gods everywhere, every city, every area had its own gods that they sold themselves to. And here comes Paul and the other believers speaking truth into that context and saying that none of your gods are gods, but let me tell you about the one true God. And the one true God can be found in one place, and that's in the word of God. We find him in here. He is described to us. He is revealed to us in God's word. And anytime we step outside of God's word and begin to formulate what God is, we have created an idol. So this message that there is one God penetrates into the darkness of our culture today because our culture today is equally as idolatrous as it was back 2,000 years ago. Whenever we hear the phrase or whenever the phrase comes out of my mouth or our mouths that says my God would never do that, we have created a God after our own image and likeness. Who God is to me, fill in the blank, we have now created a God after our own image. And this message that there is one God revealed to us through the, word, through the scripture is a message that is hated, but it penetrates with light into the darkness of our world. He is the God that is in scripture, and he can be known. And this is what scripture reveals to us. We are given the knowledge of truth about this God who is one God. The second truth that we are told in this passage that we are to proclaim is the truth that there is one mediator. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Now, we know, Scripture teaches us, that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is truly God and truly man miraculous. But here, Paul refers to him in his humanity because he is talking about his function, his role as our mediator. Jesus shares in our humanity so that we can be joined to him and thus stand before God. We desperately need a mediator. Our rebellion as human creatures against our creator had completely severed our relationship with God, the creator. But God in his grace has provided for fallen, simple, sinful people a way for us to be restored to him. We as a human race rebelled against God, but God in his great mercy came to us in the flesh to restore sinners to the holy God. Christ Jesus is our perfect mediator. As God, he brings justice and mercy to bear on our relationship with our creator. But as a man, he perfectly, he, he brings his perfect obedience to the law 
that we need in order to be reconciled to God. As our perfect, sinless sacrifice, Christ Jesus, our mediator, provides forgiveness of sin to all who put their faith and trust in him without forsaking the just judgment against sin because it was laid on him. The third truth is that Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom is something that obtains the release of a prisoner. It's making a payment, a demanded payment for a prisoner. And these two truths, Paul and we, proclaim about Jesus, that he is both our mediator and our ransom, gives us insight into what salvation is. Not only does Jesus stand between us and God as our mediator, but he is also ransoming us. He's releasing us. He's delivering us from the judgment that we justly deserve. But from whom and to whom is Christ paying this ransom? Jared Wilson explains this passage in, in Timothy in this way. The context of this passage shows us Christ as the mediator, not between men and the devil, or between God and the devil, but between men and God. It would seem from the shape of this text that the ransom is paid by the Son of God to God the Father as Jesus becomes the ransoming mediator between God and men, making atonement for men to God. So to put it shortly and sweetly, we are saved from God, by God, for God. We are saved from God, by God, and for God. And who are those that are ransomed? The text says all. But as we've begun to discover, all does not mean all without distinction. Jesus said these words in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. All is referring to all kinds of people, as it has throughout the text. All kinds of people who would place their trust in Jesus Christ through faith. From every tongue, from every tribe, and from every nation, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they're male, whether they're female, whether they're kings, or whether they're servants, all who put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus receive salvation. And this is what Paul is referring to. And he says the very same thing in Galatians 3. Verses 25 through 29, Paul says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What Paul is saying in that passage is not an erasure of these distinctions. But what he's saying is that salvation doesn't, isn't based on those distinctions. 
It doesn't prohibit somebody from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So he's not erasing the distinctions, but he's saying regardless of the distinctions, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, those who are in Christ Jesus are sons of God and heirs to eternal life. It's beautiful. And these are the truths that our scriptures, our word of God proclaims. And these are the truths on which our faith is founded on. These are the truths that we confess with our mouths, believing in our heart. These are the truths that Paul was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles. And this is the truth that the church has been entrusted with. This is the truth we proclaim to all people indiscriminately. And the many who believe will be saved. So the priorities of the worship of God's people are prayer, the gospel, and the proclamation of the truth of Scripture. May we never, ever, ever lose sight of these priorities in our churches today. So Paul continues his instruction for worship, and he he focuses now on the disposition of the hearts of the worshipers. He first addresses the men, and I believe this is intentional. The word for man that is used here denotes a husband. It can also be translated husband. So we're talking about grown-up, adult men, men who could be husbands. And I believe he addresses the men first because, as we are going to see shortly, he is aligning his instructions with the order of God's creation. He is calling for men to lead. He says in verse 8, I desire that in every place, and I have to stop here because this is an important phrase, in every place signals to us that what Paul is communicating here to Timothy and the church in Ephesus is not just to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. This is not a cultural context issue that is only for this this context in this culture in Ephesus. These instructions are for the worship in every place all the churches in that time. But then we know that because the Holy Spirit inspired these words, that these words apply to the worship in our churches today, throughout the ages and into today. So he, I desire that in every place that men should pray lifting holy hands. Now, this lifting of holy hands, this lifting of hands in prayer is referring to the Old Testament custom of praying with uplifted hands. It was a very common thing. That's how they prayed. So he's referring to that, but that's not the focus of his instruction here. He's talking, the focus is the holy hands, This is what we're intended to focus on. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The men are called to pray. Men are called to pray. Now, this is not to the exclusion of women because we know in other parts of Scripture that women are called to pray as well, privately and corporately. But here, Paul wants to address the men. He wants to address the men, and they are called, the men are called to lead out and to pray. Now, the effects of the fall hit men and women differently. And there are two areas, generally speaking, that we can see where the fall displays itself most predominantly in men. The first is apathy. 
men tend towards either being apathetic or abusive. Anger, filled with anger and quarreling. And Paul is addressing both of these issues in this one sweet little verse. When he calls men to pray with holy hands, without anger or quarreling, he's calling them to lead out in prayer, but to do so with holy hands, not hands clenched in fists and anger, but open hands submitted to the authority of God in their life. Hands in scripture symbolize the activities of life. Holy hands represent a holy life. He is calling men to holiness. He is calling men out of apathy and away from abuse to holy life, to holy living. The disposition of men in the worship assembly is to be one of strength under control. He is to come to the worship of God, submitted to him in all of life. This is a holy life. And anger and quarreling are hindrances to the worship of God, and they hinder prayers. Peter addresses the prayer of men or husbands that is hindered by the way they treat their wives. If they treat them harshly, this is a hindrance to their prayers, Peter tells us. In 1 Peter 3, 7, he says this, Husbands, in a similar way, live with your wives with understanding, since they are weaker than you are. Honor your wives as those who share God's life-giving kindness so that nothing will interfere with your prayers. There are things that will interfere with our prayers and the worship of God. And one of those is anger and quarreling. One of those is sinful attitudes of the heart. And so Paul is calling men to step out of apathy and away from abuse. Lead, lead in, the, in the gathered assembly and pray with holy hands, holy lives. In Paul's instructions to men, we are given the beautiful truth of the hope we have in Jesus what the fall brought to men, abuse and apathy, is redeemed by the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. These men of God praying with holy hands are being transformed to the image of the one in whom they put their trust, the Lord Jesus. As they look to him, their lives are being changed. They're being changed into holy men. Looking to him, he who is not apathetic, who pursues and leads his bride spiritually, they see their example. He, the Lord Jesus, lifts holy hands and teaches us to pray with a life fully surrendered to the Father's will. He, the Lord Jesus, who is not controlled by anger or quarreling, but rather perfectly exemplifies godly humility and strength under control. Paul is calling men to look to Jesus, to pattern their life after Jesus, to lift holy hands, characterized by holy living, so that the worship of God will be unhindered. Now, let's look at how godly women are to be characterized in the worship assembly. Verse 9, 
Likewise also, and this is saying in the same way that in every place, not just in Ephesus, that men are to pray, likewise also women. And women, the word here that is used for women is also could be translated wives, so it's referring to adult women. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So just like with men, he's addressing something in man that needs to be redeemed. He's addressing something within women that also needs to be redeemed. And we as women can be distracted by our appearance, can we not? We can be really distracted and focused on our outward appearance, how we look, what we're wearing, how others are going to perceive how we look and what we're wearing. We can be distracted and we can be a distraction. It can go both ways. And Paul's addressing both of these. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Now, he's not saying that women are to be ugly. I don't believe that because he says adorn yourself. Well, the word adorn itself means to make beautiful, to beautify. So it's not about being frumpy. It's not about coming to church in a gunny sack. It's not. And I know that there are places that have made it about that. I know that you can go to churches where there could be a picture posted that is going to show you what kind of clothes you need to wear and how long your skirt needs to be and whether you can wear jewelry or not. That's not what is happening here. He is not calling us to be ugly. <laughs> we can be just as distracting in a frumpy attire than if we're overdressed, right? And so the call here is to be modestly attired, which means unassuming, moderate in your dress. You're not going to be drawing attention to the glitz, to the glamour, to yourself whether in one direction or the other direction, modestly, moderate, which requires self-control. Women should adorn themselves, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with godliness, with good works. The focus needs to shift from our outward appearance, and that being a distraction, whether to our own hearts or to the hearts of others. But instead of thinking about how we're going to, obsessing on how we're going to adorn ourselves outwardly, let us then obsess on how we're going to adorn our inward self, our inner heart. This is an issue that gets to the heart of a woman. It goes beyond the outward appearance. Modesty goes well beyond obeying the rules for a certain length of skirt. Immodesty goes beyond the revealing of the flesh. 
To dress in a way that brings attention to yourself, brings attention to your body, brings attention to your wealth, brings attention to whatever, in such a way that it distracts from the worship of God, but rather we are to bring attention to the inner beauty that God desires for his female image bearers. The puzzle Peter says almost the exact same thing in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning, he says it twice, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable. This imperishable, we're all getting old and our beauty is fading, Okay. We have perishable beauty, but this beauty that we are being called from God's word to tend and to adorn ourselves is imperishable. It will never fade away. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, listen to this, which in God's sight is precious. When we are focusing on our outward appearance, we're trying to get other people to view us in a certain way. But really what matters is God's view. And God's view of his female image bearers as they adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is precious. It's precious to him. And this is about our priority. It is to be centered on the internal adornment of our heart rather than the external adornment. God desires his female image bearers to come to the worship of him as holy women, godly women, dressed in godliness, dressed in the fruit of the spirit, dressed in self-control, and dressed in good works. And he continues to describe some of those good works that we are to be clothed in. In verse 11, it's submissiveness. In verses 11 and 12, quietness, faith, love, holiness, and again, self-control in verse 15. So let's dive into that. Let's dive into looking at those good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, let's just tackle this one Head on, because I know you've all been waiting for this, these verses, right? <laughs> these words in verses 11 through 15 might be some of the most controversial words in all of Scripture. At least in our modern Western cultural context. Do not assume that these words have been controversial in history or is, are controversial throughout the world. Don't assume that. They are controversial in our context, and these words are rejected and hated by many. Paul is accused here of being misogynistic, hater of women, but I would beg to differ. Again, these words are not just Paul's words. 
These are God's words. These are God's words to us. And if I know nothing else in this world, I do know this, that because these are God's words, they are good because he is good. They are beautiful because he is beautiful. They are life-giving because he is life-giving. Because these are God's words, then these words are words that will honor his female image bearers. Let's look at them closely and see if we can see this. And I've been praying all week for all of our hearts that we could see the beauty that are in these words. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, there's an assumption here going on that's behind the scenes. There's an assumption that in the church, we are all learning. The congregation are learning. We're sitting under the teaching and learning of our pastors. That's what we do. This faith that we have, this Christian faith, is a learning faith. That's why it's called, we're called disciples, learners. So there's an assumption that in the church, we're learning under the teaching of our pastors. But Paul does not address men. Did you notice that? He doesn't say men are to learn. Why? Because it was assumed that men would learn. Men always were the learners. But women, on the other hand, had no opportunity in this cultural context to learn outside the church or inside the church. There was no context for them to, that women would learn. And so what we're seeing in this passage of scripture is Paul, let me rephrase that, is God through his servant Paul advocating for his female image bearers that they would not be overlooked that they would not be excluded from this learning environment. He takes the time to call this out because this is something that could have been overlooked in their cultural context without them even realizing it. Women did not have opportunities to learn, to learn and Paul advocates in the eternal word of God for the biblical literacy of women. You and I, here today, are a legacy of Paul's words. Because here we are, 2,000 years later, studying his word, studying the word of God, becoming biblically literate. He is so concerned that women not be overlooked and not be allowed to learn that he brings this out as a priority issue. And he says, let her learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this, this word for quietly, learn quietly, the original word translated, it means exhibit a peaceful and gentle attitude in the task of learning. It's talking about how we learn. How do we learn? We learn quietly. It's not about subjugation of women. It's not about saying women are to shut their mouths, silence women. This is not what the text is saying at all. It's talking about the posture of our learning. We learn with a gentle attitude, a peaceful attitude, a submissive attitude. I want you to think back to the story in the gospel accounts where Jesus is as at Mary and Martha's house. 
the house. And you remember how Martha was very distracted by the things. She's trying to get dinner ready. She's doing all the things. She's getting all irritated because Mary's just sitting there. But there's Mary, quiet. She's not distracted by all the things. Her heart is at peace because she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. This is the picture that we need to think about. This is what Paul's talking about. This is the heart attitude that we come to the scriptures learning with quiet, not distracted like Martha, but with a quiet and peaceful spirit and submission to the God who stands behind his word. And this is really what we talk about every year at Bible study. How do we learn to study the Bible? This is what I'm trying to communicate. I should have just quoted this. Quietly. We don't put our words on the text. We receive the text. We let the text speak to us. And we, with peaceful quietness and submission to the God of the word, learn from him. Paul makes it clear that learning in quietness and submissiveness is a good work that adorns a godly woman. However, as he continues on, he reveals that the good work that we are called to as women does not include the pursuit of being a pastor or an overseer in the congregation. There is a division of labor that is by God's design and God's plan within the worship setting. He continues on and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Go back to learning in quietness and submission. The office of overseer or pastor or bishop or elder or whatever you call it is one of instruction and oversight. The men who are called by God for this task are called to teach with authority those that God has entrusted to them. 1 Timothy 4.11 says, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. It is qualified men, and we're going to look at those qualifications next week. But it is qualified men, and I want to note here, not every man is qualified to be a pastor either. It is qualified, called men to whom God has given the task and the weight of responsibility. It's a weight of overseeing the congregations that he has entrusted with them. This is not because women are less important than men. This is not because they are less valuable. This is not because women are not as smart or not as skilled as men. In fact, many women are extremely gifted in leadership and in teaching. And I'm really excited because next semester we're going to be looking at how God commands women to use the gifts that he gives them within the, the church body in Titus chapter 2. You'll have to stay tuned for that. We don't have time for that today. So why then does God, through Paul, exclude women from the office of pastor? I'm just so glad you asked me that question. Because God did not make us 
for that purpose. He did not make us for that purpose. Paul takes us back to Genesis chapter 2 in order to, to root the reason why. God created man and women distinct, different, equal in value, but different in their roles. And God's creation was very good. Fathers are not mothers. Mothers are not fathers. Men are not women. Women are not men. I know that these words are inflammatory words today. But I don't care. Because God's word is truth. And God's word is good. And God's design is beautiful. And it's good. And when we live in God's design, men and women flourish. But when that design is washed out, when, when we start to blur the edges of the, of the distinctions that God has placed within his creation order, we are seeing the result of that in our world today. That's not order. People are not flourishing. What we are dealing with in our world today is a result of ignoring and rejecting the distinctions that God made between his male image bearers and his female image bearers back in Genesis chapter 2. He says um, in, in the text that we're looking at, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's in Genesis 2. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And God placed Adam in the garden and gave him instructions for life in the garden. He was given the word of God, and he was tasked with the responsibility to teach Eve this very word after God had given Eve to Adam. God placed on Adam the responsibility for the garden, for his family, and ultimately, after the fall, God placed on Adam the responsibility for the fall of humanity into sin. Scripture says, in Adam, we all die. Not in Eve, in Adam. Eve sinned, and she paid the consequences for that. But the responsibility was placed on Adam because he was the head. And this is where this teaching is rooted in. For Adam, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, what Paul is highlighting is the order of things. Not that women are more susceptible to deception than men. They're not. But our focus is on the order. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Eve sinned first, and then Adam. And Adam, I want you to, to note sinned with his eyes wide open. He wasn't deceived. He knew. 
He sinned with his eyes wide open. But Adam was formed first, then Eve. Eve sinned first, then Adam. In the fall, there was a direct reversal of God's creation order. Satan is always seeking to unravel God's good design and reverse his creation order and went to first to Eve, who was deceived, ate of the fruit, and then gave to Adam, who also ate. Paul's restrictions here in this text are not based on a misogynistic view of woman, but rather they are based on God himself, on the goodness of God's order, and of the goodness of God's design for his creation. What Satan did in the fall was to create chaos out of this order. What God is doing in redemption is bringing back order out of the chaos. And that is what is happening in our text. Paul's instructions to the church about the order of worship is bringing God's people back into alignment with God's original design so that the people of God can flourish. And it is good and it is beautiful and ultimately brings glory to our God when we walk in submission to that. I want us to read these verses again, but hear them differently this time. Hear them as the beautiful words of scripture, of a glorious God who stands behind these words. Let a woman learn with all quiet, learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Let's look closely at verse 15 to close this thing up. Look, look down at your Bibles. <laughs> I want you to see this with me. Verse 15 says, yet she, singular. Who is the she? I think it's pointing back to the woman, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. This is so incredibly beautiful that it takes my breath away. While Satan came in to destroy all of God's good creation, and he did this through the woman, God, our glorious blessed God, flips this up on its head, and through the very woman, Satan deceived and sought to destroy. God brings salvation. She. Eve. Her name is the mother of all the living. It would be through the divinely, the divine way that God created and formed woman that he would bring his redeemer. This is not a text that's saying that every woman who has a baby is saved. That's not what this is talking about at all. But God designed woman to be life givers. And I think this is so beautiful and I hope that we can capture this. God knows all things, right? He knows everything. Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. That tells us that God knew before he created that sin was going to happen. That God knew before he created Eve that she would be deceived by the serpent. 
So when God designed Eve as the, as the way he designed her, he designed her with Jesus in mind. God designed us to be life givers. Everything about her makeup, everything about our makeup supports what he designs us for. Her skeleton is different from a man's. Her organs are different from a man's. Her hormones are different from a man. And all of the way that we were made biologically supports God's purpose and call for us. Because God knew that it would be through a woman that he was going to bring salvation to women. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 15 says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If they continue... It's plural now. It switches. He switches gears on us. She will be saved through childbearing, but they, if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Paul had told Timothy in verse 4 that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Salvation is brought to all people, but here in this text, God is highlighting that salvation has been brought through a woman, and it is also for women. How amazing it is it that God would inspire Paul to ensure that so much time in this letter would be devoted to making sure that his beloved female image bearers would know in the midst of a culture 2,000 years ago that often abused them, ignored them, and rejected them, that they were seen by God. Isn't it amazing that God would preserve this for us today in a culture that seeks to erase us from existence and what it means to be a woman? That we would know that God sees us, that he knows us, and that we've been designed uniquely for his purposes, and that the knowledge of the truth that leads to salvation is for us too. They, plural, the women who are in Timothy's congregation and the woman in every place, in every congregation, throughout history, to today, you, me, in this room, who have by faith trusted in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, who are staking our lives in this trusted word that we are studying, who are adorning ourselves with good works, learning quietly with submission and glorying in the roles that God has designed for us, which is, in God's sight, very precious. All of these women are now being called to live fully into God's design for his female image bearers and to continue to do so, to persevere in the faith that we already have in Jesus Christ, to persevere in love and holiness with self-control because it is precious in the eyes of God. Because at the end of it all, there will be life, abundant and eternal life in the presence of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word. 
I pray that you would persuade our hearts, like I prayed earlier, persuade our hearts to receive the truth, that we would love the truth. And I ask that you would direct our steps so that we would walk in your paths of mercy and truth. Amen.